This is San Francisco, the city chosen by one of the most brilliant and sensitive new generation of filmmakers, Peter Bogdanovich, for his maiden comedy effort, What's Up, Doc? Starring Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill. Any experienced observer of shooting techniques will quickly sense the utterly new and different atmosphere created on the Bogdanovich set. No more the crass showmanship and slapdash of the old Hollywood. Here, too, none of the catch-as-catch-can, do-it-anyway attitudes of former filmmakers. Here, instead, is a skilled artist, sophisticated in his craft, using the camera as Heifetz uses a Stradivarius. The relationship between star and director is no longer, as in the old days, one of master and slave. Here, mutual respect between the artist director and the artist stars make possible an exquisitely honed response. In a rare glimpse of two artists at work, we are afforded an insight into how director Peter Bogdanovich, working with stars Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill, can manage to put these two performers together and create that almost indefinable thing which is most simply described as a motion picture called What's Up, Doc? All right, welcome, welcome, welcome. It's, this is episode four, I believe. Of... No, no, no. No, no, Nanette. Oh, oh that's yeah. right. We've turned the corner on five episodes. <laughs> no, no, Nanette. That's sexy. Yeah, we uh, um, yeah, we, we made a, uh, a, a, a decision we don't have to, we don't actually have a yeah. commitment to, but that, that now that we have, after today, when we have five after in today, the bag. If we, if we make it. If we make it through this episode, we'll start bringing people on as guests. We needed to yes. establish our identity, yes, um, ourselves, preference, orientation, where we land on the gender spectrum. All right, and and also then I I also took the opportunity on the eve of our fifth episode to write up uh, write up a what do you call it like a mission statement? Tremendously <laughs> the, helpful. The, yeah, the, is awesome. it? I don't know. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. And I don't know. Should we should we talk about that on the air? I don't know. I think we no because it really is what we've been doing. I think I just tried to put into words. You uh, codified it. Yeah. Yes. yeah exactly. I like to what say is codified. this show anyway? It's yeah. uh, seventy movies we saw in the seventies, and it's yeah. the fifth episode. Well, who are you? I am uh, Mike McPadden. I'm the author of uh, Teen Movie Hell and Heavy Metal Movies. And who are you? I am Ben Reiser. I have authored no books. Uh, <laughs> I have a couple of jobs at the University of Wisconsin-Madison related to film exhibition. Uh, one at the Wisconsin Film Festival, one at UW Cinema Tech. And I suddenly find myself in these plague times involved with more uh, podcasts than I can shake a stick at. Uh, podcasts, commentary tracks, everything. You, you want to record something at home, I'm your guy. He is. He is. And you, you, you can tell by... Uh, when he's not working on my other podcast and when he comes on board, the night and day aspects of that, which is crackpot cinema. So anyway, we're talking today about What's Up, Doc, from 1972, the uh, beloved screwball farce directed by Peter Bogdanovich, whose name I will never not spell wrong. Because you don't, it doesn't sound like there should be an A where there's an A. 
Exactly. You're totally right. That's it. Yeah. There. I just I summed it up in a nutshell. Yeah. You got it. And I always have to say out loud Bogdanovich when I'm typing now. Do you remember where and when you first saw What's Up, Doc? Uh, I do. It was on the ABC Sunday Night Movie. I'm going to guess it was 1975, maybe. Maybe 74. That's, it usually uh, took two years for a movie to get to network TV. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I spent uh, what felt like a couple of days online trying to figure out what network used to run this thing in prime time, when they showed it. I couldn't get anywhere online. It's like a black hole. Have you ever done this where you try to find out when a film was first broadcast? Every day, yes. Yeah. Why is that information not readily available in today's day and age? Uh, it is, but you have to... You have um, to pay for it, I guess? Well, yeah, that's the answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean... You have to be an insane obsessive like my friend Paul Sauer, right. who collects and has encyclopedic knowledge of TV Guy. Not just TV Guy, but also TV Week from Long Island Newsday. From yeah, well, kid. this is the thing. Why has not? Why is there not like an online archive, a PDF archive of, of TV Guide from the Would 70s? Would you buy that in a second? Of course I, had, I would. Uh, CD-ROMs of National Lampoon and Mad Magazine. Yeah. Never never used them, but I had them for 20 years. Right. But I would love to have a TV guide or a card like that. Yeah. Right. Because my memory, it was similar to yours. And then I thought, oh, I think it was, was on ABC. And I think it must have been a Sunday night movie. But my, but, but I was thinking about this today. There were, there were a, a, a few, a very few movies that were event appointment TV for me in the 70s. And, yes. and, and it was, I don't know why. I mean, it was just, well, some of them are obvious. So Wizard of Oz. Okay. Well, exactly. Which yes. was always on what? Thanksgiving? Or, Wizard of Oz, or, I think, was Chris, like a winter time. Might have been like February. I think for the for the sweeps. Oh, okay. Like I, Easter time, maybe May. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, yeah. Um, well, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, uh, which I hadn't thought of until just this second, but I think that was another one that if it was on, <laughs> I was, was sort of watch. randomly uh, yeah. scheduled. Yeah. Um. Uh, I guess it's a wonderful life. Although that well, might have been later. Because it was, it was gone for a while. Yeah, but when we yeah. were kids, it was not gone. It was after we It came we were back when it. it fell into the public domain, and then it was on every channel at weird times. Maybe that was the Thanksgiving one. Maybe that's what was on every Thanksgiving. Yeah. Well, the one for me was the day after Thanksgiving began, March of the Wooden Soldiers. Oh, yes. Well, absolutely. That's another appointment yeah. TV. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, and then Yellow Submarine, which I think I might oh, be yeah. delusional about, but it was at least a couple times. I was like, oh, yeah. But then, for for whatever reason, this movie, What's Up, Doc? Um, and my memory is, is that there was this family that my family was friends with. And they actually lived around the corner from us, basically, but in the opposite direction from you and your family. So, like, on Farragut Road around East 23rd or 24th Street. Right. And we would go to their house for dinner once or twice a year. And I thought it was associated with a holiday. And I asked my mom about this. And she goes, well, if it was a holiday, it was, might have been Purim. <laughs> of all the lame ass sort of In like. In March. Yeah. yeah. But, that, but my recollection was what, whatever night we were at their house, inevitably, What's Up Doc would be on TV. And we would insist on staying there until the end of the movie, which was fairly late for us kids. Uh, and I don't know if it was because they had a color television, but we didn't. I think we had color TV. They must have had a bigger TV. I don't know. I think we would just sort of start the evening there, and the movie would kick on. And even though everyone else wanted to go home, we were like, no way. We're staying till the end of What's Up, Doc. 
I recall the first time I saw it was at my grandma Kitty's, my father's mother's house in upstate New York. Absolutely the ABC Sunday night movie. And then it became, and my first note is on par with Wizard of Oz and March of the Wooden Soldiers. Yes, I forgot. Or like the Charlie Brown holiday specials, like the stuff like right. you couldn't possibly miss it. And you thought about it until it came back <laughs> around again. Right, right. Um I think just because it it floored me with how funny it was, how genuinely, you know, like what we dreamt of as kids, like this is like real adults in a cartoon, but they're alive. Yeah, and and I just want to let me just cut to 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 one chase here, to say that uh, watching it again yesterday, and I and this is a movie that I that I tend to watch probably once every couple of years. Uh, to this day, like, uh, you know, anytime I, every once in a while, I think, oh, I need to watch What's Up Doc again. Um, but but watching it again for the first time in a few years uh, yesterday, uh, it was as funny or funnier than ever. And, and it's this interesting movie to me in that it's this movie that seems like it's built for all ages. But that the things yeah. that I found funny at age seven or eight are not the same things that I found funny at 16 and 17. And those aren't the same as the things I found funny in my 20s and 30s. And I don't think the things that I laughed the hardest at yesterday, I don't think were the things that I'd ever laughed that hard at up until yesterday. That's an excellent point. I have the same experience. And, you know, right away, first off, it's called What's Up, Doc? So as a kid, you're right. in because right. it's Bugs Bunny. And then. When, do you remember? So the ABC Sunday Night, we should talk about what an event that was every week. That was where ABC would bust out the big premiere of a Hollywood movie that had never been broadcast on television. We didn't have cable or anything like that at the time. So, um, And they had all the James Bond movies, which I saw all the James Bond movies except for The Spy Who Loved Me. Up until The Living Daylights. I saw them all on the ABC Sunday Night movie. Uh, by the way. I don't want to interrupt this story, and I don't want to but, contradict yes. this story. But the one TV listing I was eventually able to find for this thing was not on ABC. It was an NBC primetime airing of it on a Saturday night. And I suppose wow. that's possible and maybe even probable. Do you know what probable. era that was? Again, it was in, I think it was, it might have been, you know, I had it up. I had this ad up or this TV listing up all week, and then I finally closed it. I don't know where it is. <laughs> okay. But I think it was I think it was maybe in the eighties. Okay, so that would make sense. That's when movies at some point would hop from network to network. Okay. So. All right. If you say that's yeah. true, then I'll I'll buy it. Because like uh you know, Animal House was an NBC uh premiere in the eighties and then it was on ABC in the nineties. So that that happens. Uh vacation, I I'm I'm just going strictly by national Lamp movies, it has dropped to every network. So Right, right. Um, and this is before cable and, and basic cable, especially. But uh, you had so the Sunday night movie, it was just, you know, you had this incredible thrilling music, the kind of 2001 animation effects of the stars and bars and everything. Yes. And um, the big booming announcements. Then they had the really cool little like 15 second trailers that they would cut. Mm -hmm. And then it would go to a commercial because you get so excited. They're like, all right, chill out. And then the movie would come on just like you were in a theater. And it was, you were watching a, a movie that was on TV for the first time. And What's Up Doc was was an event like that. Yeah. 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 Can I tell you the so, two things that I found uh, that gave me the biggest belly laughs? And this is a movie please. full of like, literal belly laughs. Yes. I mean, this movie is insanely funny. 
I was thinking about how they always talk about Airplane as a movie that they tried to pack in as many jokes per minute as they could. And they figured like, you know, a certain amount of them would have to land. And so and right. it, and, and it's true about Airplane. Yeah. Now, I don't think that this is quite as overstuffed with jokes as Airplane, but it still was amazing to me how many how many gags and one liners and things there are packed into this movie and how many of them land. It's such a incredibly high percentage of like jokes that work um, compared to the odd, you know, the, the occasional joke that doesn't quite land perfectly in this and movie. And even when it doesn't land, it's just a scene that moves the movie. You know, it's a line of dialogue that is just there and then we're on to the next. Right. Incredible madcap machination. Right. Okay, so... Um, one of the, one of the two things that made me laugh really hard is in, uh, this is a movie, is another thing about this movie, uh, is that I think most comedies, you know, and most action movies too, build themselves around one or two, maybe three real big set pieces. And then the rest of the movie sort of like just works, works to get you to those things. This one What's Up Doc to me legitimately has five killer set pieces. And the first one of them is that um, reception at the hotel, like the the dinner where all the musicologists get to meet each other. Um, There's a lot. And and so Barbara Streisand. Well, you know what? At some point, we're going to go through the plot of this movie, right? Yeah. So when we get to when we get to it, I'll tell you what what was. Okay. so my feeling on this is that. uh Watching again, and, and oddly, Rachel and I had watched this about a month ago. Just mm-hmm. let's watch something. So it was good to revisit it again this morning. What was um, her history with the movie? Uh, just loved it. Loves uh, everybody involved with it. You know, similar to us. She's five years younger than me, though. So um, a little bit different experience. Um, so it's just, it's just, it's perfectly built. And watch this, like, I understood how Wes Anderson is so devoted to um, Bogdanovich and publicly declares how indebted he is to him. Because I think Wes Anderson builds these perfect movies. Now, they annoy the shit out of me and his whole take on life and aesthetic and everything makes my skin crawl. But I think he's brilliant. And, and I just see this, and as it goes along... And, and this is the opposite of that. It's equal in terms of its intricacy, but I love everything involved with it. I love the cartoon element. I love the screwball element. I love the incredible pop art design of some of the scenes, particularly that party that they go yeah. to. Yeah, well, th- so that's something that hit me this time watching it. You know, uh, so I, I know I saw this movie probably two, three, four, five times, six times before I saw or really registered... Um, Bringing Up Baby, which uh, as soon as I saw and was able to register Bringing Up Baby as a thing, which was probably, I think I was probably closer to being in my teens, I was probably in junior high school. Right. That became for me like the ultimate, like that, I still think that's the funniest movie I've sure. ever seen, the most perfect movie, everything about that movie is spectacular. And then I, I then I think at some point I, I saw What's Up Doc again and, and, and it hit me like, oh wait. This is he's yeah, doing bringing yeah. up baby, which uh, you know in theory would annoy the fuck out of me, which is sort of true <laughs> about everything about Peter Bogdanovich, uh, who is you know 
got to be one of the sort of more repulsive and just obnoxious <laughs> dude. Gargoyles. Yeah. But at the same time, is a pretty great raconteur and an amazingly brilliant filmmaker. Um, yeah. And so you got to sort of say like, okay, you know, <laughs> I got to, what yeah. can I do? I love the guy, although I sort of hate the guy. But, but, but the, but one of the things that tells me that this movie is an all time classic is, is that even, even though it's this insanely, you know, direct homage slash ripoff of bringing up baby and screwball, screwball comedies, it, he pulls it off. Like, I don't know who else could do this. Like nobody has done this. Nobody. Well, that's it. Every piece of this, I can't imagine anyone else doing no actors could other actors could play this. No one else could drink. The team of writers could not have been different. Couldn't be anybody. Right, else. exactly. And and I want to get into all that. But but what I was starting to say was that watching it this time after years of saying, oh yeah, it's this fantastic homage to bringing up baby, and somebody pulls it off. I was reminded yesterday that it's not only that because it, it is just about equally the a straight up i mean he's right there in the title he's doing a cartoon movie he's doing a looney yeah. tunes he's like barbara streisand is you know basically playing bugs bunny i mean she sort of is literally doing this bugs bunny stuff she's like this right. female bugs bunny but more than that he it's it's as it's as just as much a tribute to the Frank Tashlin and Jerry Lewis movies. There's that whole element of it, the sort of silent visual sight gags, which are not as much an element of bringing up baby, although certainly bringing up baby and screwball comedies have that. But he is clearly and with the color palette and the, the way that Lazlo Kovacs has, has shot this movie, which is absolutely gorgeous to look at. Um, it. it it's just as much doing that, it's doing the Looney Tunes thing, but live, a live action version of this cartoon film, which is basically what Frank Tashin was doing his whole career after he moved out of animation. So that was a good reminder to me yesterday. It's not just, he isn't just nailing Bringing Up Baby, he's also nailing this whole other strain of com- comedy filmmaking. Uh, to me, what amazes me is how he fuses yeah. the two, because Tashlin, Bugs Bunny, and Airplane stop the movie for jokes. And they're like among my favorite things that ever existed. But this never stops. This is a seamless, flowing story where the jokes just happen as you go along with them. Right. Although I will say, and not to, I totally agree with that, but the, but the things that I think I found most entertaining and humorous as a kid were those sight gags and were all the sort of running around with the hotel detective and Michael Murphy and the other Please, guy yeah. swapping out, ducking under beds yeah. and stuff. And that's the stuff that at age 53, about to be 54, is maybe the least interesting stuff in the movie to me. Like, I, right. you know, bring me back to Austin Pendleton, give me some more Kenneth Mars, give me more Barbara Streisand, give me more Ryan O'Neill. Right. I don't need to see these guys playing yeah. around with those bags anymore. But I think it's brilliant and amazing that, you know, I don't... I, I, I don't think he could possibly have been, or and, and when I say him, I also mean Buck Henry and Robert Benton and, and everyone who was involved with the movie. I don't think they could have consciously been planning to make a movie that would appeal to you throughout your life, you know, for different reasons. But somehow they pack in the kind of comedy that appeals to six-year-olds, 16-year-olds, 26-year-olds, and 56-year-olds, and on and on. I believe it was rated G. Yeah. What's up, Doc? Yeah. 
which you know they did just as movie studios like believed in X-rated films at that time, they also believed in G-rated yeah. films, and then we got away from all that. So, well, first of all, let's talk about. Do you want to talk about Peter Bogdanovich a little more and where he uh, was coming from when he made? Because th- this is, you know, I know we've already talked about Peter Bogdanovich, but I don't think we can emphasize enough how amazing his run. Uh, at the beginning of his career was no those first three movies for, yeah I, mean, I was watching yeah. a movie on Amazon Prime the other night called uh, the Vast of Night it's a new movie it's like a it's a throwback sort of science 50s science fiction movie it's not a great movie but mm-hmm. from the very first frame it is filled with uh, vision and like invention. And you can just tell that these are filmmakers who are shot out of the gate and it's their first film and that they have a ton of ideas. And more importantly than that, they have confidence in those ideas. So that like from the very first second of this movie, you're like, okay, I can just sit back and they're, I know they're taking me someplace. They have an idea what they want to do and they have the guts to just do it. Um, and it actually totally reminded me of those first three or four Bogdanovich movies where you know, it's true he had been around. He had been, he was like, I think he was like 30 or 31 when he made What's Up Doc. Or, or when he, yeah, I think when he, I think he was 30, 31 at What's Up Doc. And so he would have been a year or two younger when he did Last Picture Show and a year or two younger when he did Targets, which was really his first film. I haven't seen that, that other film, that yeah. uh, Earth Women or something, Alien Women. Oh, Voyage yeah, to the Planet right. of the Prehistoric Women? Yeah, he only shot sequences of that. But I think, didn't he also work on The Terror? I think he was part of that crew. Well, Francis The Terror, he, he if he didn't work on it, he somehow got permission to use a ton of it for Targets. Uh, right, for Targets. And I was, right, you know, right. I, Targets is the movie out of his first batch of movies that I've seen the least. And I watched that, I watched that again this Same week, here. and I was sort of like, whoa, there's such cool stuff in this movie. And also such ridiculously obnoxious stuff and embarrassing stuff. The fact that he casts himself as the young upstart director and he takes talk about stopping a movie. He, he regularly pauses that movie so he can do like his own personal tribute to Howard Hawks. He's going to show you a Howard Hawks movie on TV. And then his character just sits there and talks about Howard Hawks for a couple of minutes. Um, it's embarrassing. But also, again, not that it's a great movie, although it's a pretty great movie. But it's just so full of confidence. Like, he's like, fuck it, man. This is my thing. This right. is what I want to do. And what a thrill. Imagine us in 1968 right. discovering that and, like, pointing at the screen. Like, I can't believe right. that guy exactly. is doing and so, and, and we haven't even talked yeah. about the, the most sort of amazing and shocking aspects of that movie, which is not the Boris Karloff stuff and not the Peter Bogdanovich playing playing a version of himself shit and not the tribute to Howard Hawks. The fact that the rest of the, this movie is this incredibly sort of documentary style um, vision of hell, of, of, of modern society, of, yeah, this, yeah. of this killer, of this uh, sociopath yeah. who kills his family and then goes to a drive-in and starts killing everyone else. One thing that I hadn't, it hadn't dawned on me until watching again this week is that it's a major influence on a movie that we're going to be talking about and watching in a couple of weeks uh, called Two Minute Warning. Frank, uh, uh, oh, yeah. never, it's another I, sniper movie. Um, and uh, it's when you see it, you'll be like, oh, my God. Yeah, this. Wow. This this owes some stuff to targets. Anyway, so he does that. Right. 
he does targets, which again, I would have felt the same way I think I felt about the vast of night, which is like, whoa, you know, 1968 to see that I would have been like, oh my God, wow, this guy is like firing in all cylinders right out of the gate. Then he follows that up with, you know, what couldn't be a more different movie, Last Picture Show. (laughs) And you're, and I think, again, I really am trying to think if I was like a 1968 adult cinephile uh, or 1969 or 70, what would I have made of those first two movies and of a filmmaker who would have gone from Targets to Last Picture Show? And then if I had finally gotten my head wrapped around a guy who would have made those two movies, then the next thing he presents me with is what's up doc. I think my head would have exploded. Yeah, no, I was, (laughs) yeah, I grappled with this, this bizarre chronology this morning too. Just imagining that. And because for target from target to the last picture show, there's something very French about that. The way the French were obsessed with like Roger Corman's biker movies into Bonnie and Clyde. So you can have this exploitation violence into this, you know, incredible uh, movie that you think, well, this really could be from the 1950s, except I'm seeing naked bodies all of a sudden. And then, but then to have this, as you said, this Frank Tashlin technicolor dream that is light and and ebullient and, and... so bursting with energy and comedy is, is right. Genre. And also the, the chutzpah, the arrogance of Bogdanovich yeah. to think like he, here he is, he had worked as a film critic. He had been writing for Esquire for years. Yeah. Um, and he was totally, and totally was into the French new wave, totally understood the auteur theory. And for him to sort of, okay, arrive on the scene, uh, and there's no doubt in anyone's mind that he thought, okay, I'm going to show everyone that I'm an auteur. I'm going to be this world-class filmmaker. I'm the next Orson Welles. And for him to go about it by making those three films, I mean, you couldn't be any more audacious because you're not, a st- you're not, you're going, <laughs> you're, you know, the, the theory of auteur is like that, you know, it's a singular vision and then you can see this through line for all, through all somebody's work, you know, and, right. and you look at, you know, even so, even the, even those Hollywood directors who sort of pushed aside the notion that they were anything other than craftsmen, even somebody like John Ford, who Bogdanovich loved, um, you right. know, they, they would find the through line. And I still don't exactly know what the through line is for Peter Bogdanovich's career and the movies he's chosen to make, uh, other than maybe a love of movies. Um, and uh, I think his whole idea of the the auteur that I'm going to be is I'm going to be the guy who can make any kind of fucking movie I want, and I'm going to be equally great at that kind of movie. Right. I Yeah, I think you're right. Um, it's interesting. You just brought to mind. So, you know, I wrote a book called If You Like Metallica. Yes. And <laughs> Speaking what, of auteurs. <laughs> exactly. Well, what I learned in the making of this book, or sort of my theory, was that they were the first heavy metal super fans to reinvent heavy metal. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what came to mind just as you were talking. Mm-hmm. So this was a guy who was a Hollywood super fan who reinvented Hollywood. Yeah. That- by way of Hollywood. Right. That makes perfect sense. And I also, you know, when you look at Bogdanovich and compare him to the other people in his class that were making movies at the same time and that everyone now looks at as like the, you know, the new Hollywood, 
I mean, there isn't anyone who did what he did in a space of four years. Like Francis Ford Coppola, maybe he's the second, you know, he's the closest where he did both Godfather films and the conversation in a similar period of time. But like, you know, fucking George Lucas, you know, after THX 1138, it was, when when was American Graffiti? And then when was Star Wars? 73. Yeah, so. Star Wars. So he took his sweet ass time. Uh, right. Even Spielberg wasn't working that fast, and uh, and neither right. one of those guys were were spreading their wings in the way that, but you know, of course, well, it's our, our, maybe George Lucas burnt out. I mean, Spielberg didn't burn out as fast. I mean, right. obviously, uh, Bogdanovich did burn out pretty right. fucking fast. Well, I have to say, after this <laughs> was Paper Moon, yes, which is my favorite of them, actually. Yeah, which is his his most successful film. Mm-hmm. His best film, and uh, you know. Well, I think that then, objectively, most people would say that Last Picture Show. Last Picture Show. Although I don't. Yeah, I would agree. I, yeah. I honestly, yeah. I would say that on any given day, I could go back and forth between Paper Moon and What's Up Doc. Um, yeah. And 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 Last Picture Show for me is always underneath those two, just because it's not as entertaining. You know, it's sadder. It's more tragic. And it's, it's yeah, a, I, yeah. Yeah, and it's a movie that existed in some previous form, whereas these two, mm-hmm. uh, Paper Moon is not like any other film that came before it. I mean, it's like every other film. Yeah. But that particular story with those two performances at the heart of it, it brings something that had never existed before. So, but And that was his biggest hit. It's a black and white movie. Yeah. Yeah, or, or sepia-toned, I guess, or whatever, whatever it was. But yes, right. Um, Targets is... Color, right? So, okay, so you went color, yes. black and yeah. white, color, sepia, yeah. and right. then... And Nickelodeon is color, right? Yeah, hmm. which I've never seen. No, I was going to say that the the truth is, I can't speak firsthand for the fact that everyone says that Bogdanovich then took a nosedive. I've never seen Daisy Miller. I've never Me. watched it Long Last Love. I have. In the 70s, I saw it. Oh, okay. Not in the theater, on the CBS Late Movie. And I was, I couldn't have been seven years old at this point. And I was laughing because I knew this was complete insanity and terrible, but I loved it. And that's without any knowledge of the movie or what it was or anything. It just was really loopy and insane. I haven't seen St. Jack, but I hear good things about it. Yeah, St. Jack is pretty great. I. It's also a little bit terrible. Okay. Which makes it also. Well, kind of great. that's how I feel about. Um, uh, What's the Dorothy Stratton one? Starry? No, 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 no. <laughs> no. They all laughed. They all laughed. It's a movie that I, I love. Yeah, I feel the same way. But the, I think it's it's pretty terrible with a little bit great. Is my I think it's pretty that. great with a little bit terrible. And I do think that it's a movie that is impossible to understand on your first viewing. And that the thing to do with that movie is to immediately watch it a second time. And it completely opens up, and you're like, "Oh yeah, okay. I, I, now I understand this movie." Um, and and through the joys of HBO and Chad Polari's apartment, I was able to do that. Uh, <laughs> and then VHS, and then DVD. Uh, and then I also have a fondness for that movie he made about the country western singer songwriters. Um, the thing called thing Love. called Love. I think that's not a bad movie. I like that yeah. too. Samantha Morton and uh, River Phoenix. Yes. Yeah. So. You know he's done some okay work over the years, but he definitely he definitely had his 
golden period, which is Daisy Miller baffled me. Like anytime, like I've looked, I was like, "What is this? Why would I want to see this?" What? Yeah, yeah. I may, I no may idea. have to watch it now. In the, in the way, we're well, gonna probably. I mean, we certainly should watch Nickelodeon at some point. Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> how did that go wrong? Unless now, I mean, except the way everything. Nickelodeon went is a movie that I've tried to watch any number of times and never am able to make it past the first 10 minutes. I don't know why. It just turns me off so much. I don't yeah. know why. And at various ages, like I've, I've tried to watch it as a teenager, a teenager and as a college student and in my adult years, I think I tried a couple years ago. I never can get past the first 10 minutes of that movie. Yeah. I've never come close. My, my aunt Doris weirdly had the novelization. Oh. Nice. And I would look at the pictures in the middle of the novelization. That was the closest I ever came to Nickelodeon. Um, at what point did Ryan O'Neill become known as, or as a joke and as a bad as actor? An insane person. Well, as an My, insane person, yes, but as a bad actor. Yeah, but as a bad yeah. actor, I think it had to be Barry Lyndon because huh. I. Yeah, I do. Th- I know, think so too. But watching Barry Lyndon now, I don't understand that because I think it's great. Right, and I think he's great in it. You know, I I agree with you, but I kind of get it because I could see how you could watch that, especially at the time, and just think, oh, there's the blonde hunk from Love Story in the middle of this, and he's not a magnetic magnetic enough center to hold it together. But, I mean, couldn't people say the same thing, and maybe they did, about his performance in this movie in What's Up, Doc, where he is forced to play somebody who these days we diagnose as having Asperger's, at the time, it was probably more like this is a guy on lewds. Like I think they thought they must right. have thought that that Rhino. Well, I think he's so funny in this, and you, and he's so sympathetic and so pal- like his frustration is so palpable. And one of the big laughs to me is when he just turns to the camera at the dinner party. Yeah, I mean Barbara strikes. He breaks that fourth morning. wall twice, doesn't he? Yeah. Like two I, times at the beginning, he looks at the camera. I oh think. yes, 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 yeah. I think so, but but the one where he just looks at the camera and goes, help. Yeah. He, he asks, he pleads us for us to help him. Yeah. Because Barbara Streisand is running so roughshod over his life yeah. in such an uncontrollable way. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I think he got bad reviews for Barry Lyndon. Uh, I remember people disliking Barry Lyndon when it came out. Yo, oh, absolutely okay. they did. Well, yeah. people dislike yeah. every Stanley Kubrick movie when it comes out. And then like, yeah, that's also, later, that's reassess. true. In my life, that's how it's been. Yeah. 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 As, as I remember it, uh, I remember Mad Magazine's Bory Linden, the parody. Mm-hmm, sure. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, having seen it not long ago at the music box, I, I loved it. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. It's unbelievably beautiful to look at. And yeah, it's a totally great movie. Okay, so let's try to walk through this movie. Uh, right. Starts off at an airport. Take it from there. <laughs> well, it starts off with uh, Babs. And I'm going to call her Babs throughout. Well, no, it starts off with girl. it starts off with Michael Murphy, actually. Well, hang on, at the it starts airport. with Babs singing "You're the Top." Oh, I'm sorry, you're right. Beautiful she's credits through yes. the storybook. Yes. The opening yes. credits, like uh, another Howard Hawks. Uh, yes, or John for one of them, Red River Valley. Um, so she's singing "You're You're the Tops," which you know here's Bogdanovich, you know his little signal that he will soon destroy himself with Cole Porter, but not in this movie. <laughs> and yeah. We get through this and we get to the last page where it says, once upon a time, uh, there's a story of these three suitcases. So to me, that established, first off, as a kid, that this was a friendly movie to me. But then since then, this is not the real world, per se. This is a story we're going we're going to go on. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so then it starts with, yes, Michael Murphy, who's so great. I love seeing him in movies. We had Michael um, Murphy come out to the Wisconsin Film Festival maybe six or seven years ago. To um, He he Q&A'd, we did a screening of Manhattan, and we did a screening of Phase 4. <laughs> with, wow, with, I love that movie. With the extended ending that they had discovered. Uh, have you ever seen oh that? Oh, my gosh. No, oh, no. Oh, yeah, there's a whole Man. crazy, like, 2001-ish, like, psychedelic... Oh, it makes such sense. It all leads to that. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, so well, that, uh, I, you know, I was trying to figure out about Michael Murphy. I feel like that's the only movie... Now, of course, he was the lead in that TV series that Altman did, Tanner, where he plays the title of right. Tanner. But I think that's the only movie, Phase 4, where he is the legit lead, like, leading man. Yeah. But it's also hard for me to think of Michael Murphy as a character actor. So what's what is it when you're not a leading man and you're not a character actor? Because you're basically always the, the same. You're the second lead. Second, guess, you're a co-star. You're, you're the co-star. Tony Roberts. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. A lifelong. Yeah, George, George Costanza. You're the second banana. Right, right. Perfect. Okay. So, um, uh, you know, in Count Yorga, is he the lead in that? No, Robert Quarry <laughs> is the lead in that. So. Yeah. But he's the human. He's the main non-vampire yeah. in that. So, so we get through that, and then we're in the airport. With Michael Murphy is picking up a suitcase. He's Mister Smith, some kind of government whistleblower. Well, now that's something that I feel like I never picked up on until this week. Like I, 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 I never really think I cared about or even or understood who Michael Murphy is supposed to be in that movie. Finally, I think I understand. He's like a muckraking reporter. Or you're saying a whistleblower. Either one of those things. Yeah, so, something like that, yeah. I just always thought they were spies or something. Right, I always thought it was like was a, a spy yeah. versus spy thing. But it, exactly. it occurred to yeah. me in this, yeah. sort of at the end, it seems like he he's talking about those documents needed to be seen by the public. So he is yeah. trying to So expose. like the Pentagon Papers right. guy. Right, right, yeah. right, right. And right, and he's being pursued by Mr. Jones, uh, and uh, by, played by Phil Roth. He's one of the very few uh, people I didn't look up <laughs> afterwards. There's not a lot okay. there. I looked him up because the face looked familiar, and I figured he was like a sitcom guy, but he really wasn't. Right. Um, and then Madeline Kahn emerges, just hilarious on sight. This is her feature movie debut with the hairdo and the uh, dress and the, you know, just complete high-strung neuroses. Well, there's another person who arrives on the scene fully formed. Like, Madeline Kahn steps into this movie, you know, and we can make arguments about any number of people who do their best and almost steal this movie. Uh, I'll say who I think comes closest at the very end of this whole thing. But Madeline Kahn certainly is doing... I mean, she is hilarious Every second that she's on screen in this movie. Yeah. When she's not speaking, she's hilarious. Yeah. When she's standing still, hilarious. And then she goes on and is equally brilliant in Paper Moon. Right. And right. then Mel, Mel Brooks grabs her and she's equally hilarious in Blazing Saddles and then Young Frankenstein. Talk about a four movie run. And those are those. she did those four yeah. movies in a row with just one weird like children's movie that i think she just has a small role in yeah yeah have yeah. you ever seen that one it's a, some some no no i had never heard I, of it before. i'd heard of the <laughs> of the book it was based on the secret files of yeah. basil t something or other yeah. yes yeah it's right. something like that but. but there you go madeline khan her first four movies out of the gate are all like oscar worthy performances yes yeah i mean classics that work every time you yeah. watch them um 
So, and then she's henpecking the hell out of Ryan O'Neill, who is her musicologist husband. Clearly the Bogdanovich stand-in. Right. With the glasses and the bow tie, as much as John Ritter was in the old Well, and even to the... One of the things that I laughed about this time that I don't think I ever had before was there's... uh, Cutting to the middle of the movie, there's this... One of the great set pieces is this hotel room fire with Barbara Streisand out on the ledge. Yes. Uh, Ryan O'Neill he wakes up and gets thrown out of the hotel and goes up to like in a like a like a I don't know what that room is like it's under construction there's a piano there's a it's a oh, bar right. that was okay. under construction yeah it was like a it was like a sky deck bar that was so he built. wakes yeah. up and he's got his his blue pajama top on and then he's put his white evening button down shirt on and his fancy jacket on <laughs> yeah. top of it and his Bow tie is still around his neck, but it looks. But that outfit looks exactly like the outfit that Bogdanovich has worn now for the last thirty years. Where it always looks like Bogdanovich <laughs> is wearing like a like a captain's jacket, and then two shirts, and then you know an ascot, a turtleneck, and the fucking yeah, ascot. And then that bow tie yeah. looks like the ascot. Yeah. I'm like, oh my god, Bogdanovich has been dressing like Ryan O'Neal ever since this movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. So he's got a plaid bag. In his bag are these rocks that make sound that he's looking to get a grant from Austin Pendleton to study whether ancient men use stones to make Now, you mentioned Austin Pendleton. (laughs) Magnificent. Who is so great. Now, a movie I can, one of those movies that anytime I bump into on cable or anywhere else, I can't not watch is My Cousin Vinny. Um, Yeah. Like, just one of the most watchable movies I've ever seen can't not watch it absolutely he is so insanely funny in that movie but i think that this might be his best role i don't know it's it's hard for me to he's so he's so perfectly just type yeah 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 this is the ultimate him yeah (laughs) (laughs) i love that he's constantly having to correct people about his name (laughs) with the little tiny buck teeth yeah 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 so good the little overbite um, so, and then we meet Babs, uh, Barbara Streisand is watching a guy make, make pizza. That, Look a little bit like Yentl. Right. And that's one of the things that as a seven year old, I, I love oh, more than anything. That pizza that, that doesn't come note. back down. Yeah. Oh, that was my note. Uh, yeah. The pizza gag alone cracked me up harder than anything else in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So the guy is spinning the pizza as you used to see in the, you know, old Stromboli pizzas and thrown in the air and it just doesn't come back down. And. Barbara's like shrugging at him. So, and speaking of Yentl, here's a side, here's a side route for us. So, something that made me insane about Howard Stern through the years, way back mm-hmm. when. Do you remember when he would go on like angrily about how Barbara Streisand, he'd be like, she's a brilliant filmmaker. Yeah. For years he said this. <laughs> yeah. And then finally one day Artie said, what are you talking about, Yentl? And he went, yeah. And they just left it at that. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. But I, I always assume like, did she direct stuff in the seventies? I didn't know about when he started doing that. Right? Like, no. no, it's it's funny because when I was looking at her list of films, because you know, I feel like ever since I knew who anyone was, I knew who Barbara Streisand was growing up sure. in Brooklyn, yeah. and that she was like the ultimate. But the truth is, I never saw any of her. I still have not seen any of her real. 
big early movies. I've never sat through all of Funny Girl. I've seen little bits no, of it on TV. Yeah. Uh, on a clear day, you can see forever. I've never watched more than five or ten minutes of Not so one second of it. The, the Owl and the Pussycat I've seen. I have I seen say, that. I was going to say, that's a movie we could definitely yeah. cover. Yes. Because that was a point of semi-obsession right. for me, briefly. And, interestingly... Um, um, for Pete's sake is a movie that I shouldn't have seen as a kid, but I did see when it was when it, I think when it came on TV, and I just remember right. that my that my mom and my grandma seemed worried that I was going to watch this movie and worried about having to explain to me what the movie was about because I don't I, I I clearly don't think I understood that she was a prostitute like had decided to become a prostitute in that movie is that what's happening yes. for pete's sake she, yeah she she's got to make money because her husband is out of work or he owes money wow. and so and she's a prostitute in the owl and the pussycat oh. yeah so but in in for pete's sake and i think i'm getting this right she's just a housewife who decides to make money by becoming right. a prostitute i think i she's I doing that for pete's a sake little of that. her husband's name is pete and i got right. you yeah I watched a little of it. There was like a motorcycle chase or something, and I got mad that it wasn't What's Up, Doc, and I turned it off. And also, Michael Sarazen grosses me out. Yeah, oh, totally. Totally. Like, like worse than Steve Rails back. He creeps yeah, me out. he is the weirdest looking dude. And uh, <laughs> and I was watching, because um, uh, I was doing this whole thing about, what's his name, uh, who did Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, J. Lee Thompson. And so I was watching the, uh, the reincarnation of Peter Proud. Yeah. And... Creepy movie, but nothing is creepier than Michael Sarazen. <laughs> the face. Yeah. yeah. Everything about Now, it. I also think I must have seen Up the Sandbox, but for the life of me, I can't remember what that movie's about. Never saw it. The weird title. I remember the, the poster. She's a bottle strapped to her back. Right. And it came out right before uh, What's Up, Doc. And, and as we mentioned, you know, my mom's favorite movie and your mom's favorite movie, The Way We Were, yeah. which I still have never really seen. So the truth is... What's Up Doc is the only movie I really watched in its entirety and watched m- much more than once as a kid. And Never Star is Born? No. 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 I've seen it. I saw a Star is Born, <laughs> but never like sequentially. But I've definitely seen it like four times whole when VH1 would rerun it in the late 90s. I, it's part of their rock movie thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. I also remember refusing to see the main event like that my friends wanted to see it they were all into that crap and i was like i don't want to see it like by then ryan o'neill had meant nothing to me and i don't know i was like i got anti all of those people at some point um and i had a similar experience with the main event where i was like nah you know and it's like i would have gone to see anything and i didn't want to see but now but then i did get into the later you know sophisticated barbara streisand stuff which is terrible nuts I did see Nuts. I did see Yentl. Right. I did see uh, that Prince of Tides. I did see um, what's the no? What's the hell's not the Mirror Crash? Mirror has, mirror two, has faces? two faces. I've I, I I hate watched that one. That that I right, knew. I get yeah. it. Yeah. I really I wanted to see that, and I walked by the Cobble Hill movie theater, and I was going to go in at the last minute. I I can't do it. Right. So when I say this following statement, it's really made. Out of ignorance, I think that Barbara Streisand is at her sexiest, her funniest, and her most beautiful in this movie. What's up, Doc? I could not agree with you more. Yeah, I mean, she is perfection. Yeah, I mean, this she is a screen presence like nothing else. And I remember the uh, some book I read about 
musicals. And it was just uh, Rex Reed is a review of a funny lady just saying, well, there was an era before Barbara, <laughs> and now we live in the era of Barbara. And I, I understand how that would happen. And and Funny Lady was I've, I've never even seen that on television or anything. The yeah, sequel, no, to Funny Girl. I remember I was at my grandmother's house again in upstate, and all the women got dressed up and went to go see it one night. I think that those kids at I home. think when those movies were on four thirty movie, that was like time for me to find out what was on Channel Nine that yeah <laughs> that yeah. week. Um, exactly. Yeah. Now you were mentioning last episode that you grew up reading Rex Reed in the Daily yeah. News. So I was wondering what it was like for you the first time you saw Lost in America, which opens with that great Rex Reed monologue. Oh, what did that mean to you, you know. at the time? <laughs> <laughs> well, at the time, 85, it didn't mean a lot, yeah. but because uh, Rex Reed was just around. Right. But now, you know, it's, it makes my heart sing. Yeah. Anything involved in that guy. He's still with us. God bless him. That's amazing. They still, he writes for the Observer. They still make him go see like the most bogus, like <laughs> PG-13 vampire bullshit. It's like, why do you go, dude? You know, I saw him. I saw, I saw him a couple of times in the city, but uh, I went to a uh, preview of a Broadway musical called The Life. Mm. That was really good about uh, prostitutes and pornographers on 42nd Street in the 70s. And he was there. He looked like a million bucks. Rex Free. God bless. We should get we he should like the let's show get him too. on the show. Please, yeah. All right. What are we up to now? So they're they're in the hotel. There's right. that great scene. It's not really I wouldn't I'm not labeling it one of my five major set pieces, but the scene where in the drugstore where uh Barbara yes. Streisand and Ryan O'Neill meet cute is is just one of the great scenes, I think. <laughs> I don't know, I mean, but it's it's meet cute like like nothing. It, but it's monstrous the way she comes <laughs> on. She's chewing a carrot and she says, "What's up, yeah. Doc?" And then, just as Bugs Bunny would would completely destroy Elmer Fudd's plans for the day, she does this. She sets her sights. She well, it's established she's a she's a grifter. She's a bunko artist, but doing like you know kind of fun stuff. She's getting free sandwiches. And she's that, checking into the hotel. For that's so funny because I had that same note. Like, what is she? Like, I never thought about it till now. I was like, no, she's a grifter. But the truth is, after those first couple scenes where she's like ordering free food for herself and all that stuff. Right. She doesn't, and well, I mean, I guess, I guess her whole character that she's playing for, for the benefit of Austin Pendleton is a big grift, but yeah, but she sort of, by the end of the movie, I'm not actually convinced that she is like a deliberate grifter. I feel like she more is just somebody who walks through life causing chaos without even really meaning to. I don't know. At the same time, I, I feel like everything is. She seems so in control of every situation, everything that comes out of her mouth. We, you know, it's revealed that she's hyper intelligent. She's been to all these colleges. She has, she can rattle off all this knowledge that she's picked up. So yeah, she is just she is an agent of chaos. Okay. She's a, a whirlwind that comes. Through. And it's and it's 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 our first of many opportunities to witness the glory of. Um, Ryan O'Neill's physical comedy chops, where he she's she's hold she's like Nom. refuses to let go of his hand, and he's trying to pull his arm back, and she lets go, yeah. and he falls backwards into all these stuffed animals, which keep collapsing on him. But he that's just the that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Ryan O'Neill and physical comedy in this movie. But it just gives you a hint of what's to come. 
but you know, you know, ripping his his uh, suit coat and just very very funny and just. You know, I mean, he was a boxer, famously, so he's got that kind of dancer's grace as he goes through. This. Well, yeah, that, all the all the coat ripping stuff—that's the most sort of deliberate. Like, we are taking this directly from Bringing Up Baby, which has that very right. same thing. Yeah. Although they then one up it later on in the hotel room, where she grabs his pants and rips those too. <laughs> right. Yes. But even before that happens. There's that great scene of him in the hotel room, and this might be the best of all the physical comedy. First of all, he's trying to take all his clothes off and can't take his bow tie off and has a, has a great right. bunch of physical comedy trying to get his clothes off. Then he discovers that she's in his bathtub and his pants drop. And he's, I don't know what she says. He sort of backs, means to like turn around, but he falls over himself. Another great bit of physical comedy. We've established that there are these multiple suitcases. There's also Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Uh, Van Hoskins, who has the suitcase full of jewels and diamonds. And you have Sorel Book and uh, Stefan Gershach as uh, the two hotel employees who are trying to steal the diamonds. So Stefan Gershach is in what would have to be considered the Fritz Feld role. And yeah. Fritz Feld is sadly not in this movie, although he was not dead at the time and would have been perfect this movie. <laughs> I don't know why he's not in this movie, although I think Stefan Gersock, whatever his name is, is great, fine and funny in yeah. that role. And appropriately enough, his character's name is Fritz, which I'm hoping is a nod to I Fritz would imagine Feld. that's homage. And then Sorel Book, of course, best known as Boss Hogg from... Uh the Dukes of Hazard, but did you ever like like look into his life? As he was like a Jewish intellectual. Oh no, He's a real no, serious he, actor. Yeah. I know that he gets mentioned basically every episode of the Gilbert Godfrey. Yes, podcast. yeah, mostly for Bye Bye Braverman. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, but he had a uh, he was in a ton of things, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. A lot of goofy stuff, but then you know other more serious stuff too. But then he became a comedy guy at some point. Yeah. And all this, of course, leads to this big banquet where these scientists are gathered and we meet Kenneth Mars as uh, Hugh Simon, who is Ryan O'Neill's rival for the grant that Austin so Kenneth, controls. So Kenneth Mars, who is from Boston, I guess? Yeah, yeah. Doing a great, I guess it's a German accent, right? I mean, that's the thing. The guy does, <laughs> this is your German accent comedian. This is the guy. Yeah. So this is the first line that made me laugh out loud, and I don't remember even ever hearing it in the at least 10 times that I've seen this movie before this. They're sitting at the table together, Barbara Streisand and, and, and Ryan O'Neill and Austin Pendleton and uh, Kenneth Mars, and she tells some cockamamie story, and he says to her, I find that story as difficult to swallow as I do this potage en jolie. How would you like to swallow one sandwich to knuckles? And that made me laugh so fucking hard. That is such a great line reading from Barbara. Maybe I'll try to put the audio in for that. So then, you know, um, Kenneth Mars, I read somewhere, ad-libbed much of his dialogue. (laughs) Wow. And, you know, he was a great, like, one of the early 1960s improv comics. So you you understand, just just go, just do it. And he's, of course, he's best known as Franz Liebkin and the producers and uh, the police chief in Young Frankenstein. So, again, the German accent comedy guy of all time. Yeah. But then again, I read this, that, this might be his best role as well. I, yeah, I mean, it's the most we get to see of him in any movie. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of a tie for that. I mean, there's, those are just three flawless things. That's true. And Three-way then, uh, tie for best. I read that, yeah, Hugh Simon, the name Simon might have been a parody of John Simon, 
the uh. you know, notoriously nasty film critic, with terrible influence on me as a writer and a human being, <laughs> um, who uh, who had just trashed uh, Bogdanovich's uh, The Last Picture Show. And he wrote about, in, in reviewing this film, he wrote, Barbara Streisand looks like a cross between an aardvark and an albino rat surmounted by a platinum-coated horse bun. Like, they got printed in a, like, you know, New York magazine or something like that, whatever he was writing. Wow, that's worse than what can be said about Ali McGraw last week. Yeah, yo, so much worse. And, and completely inaccurate, too. Yeah, oh, utterly, yeah. So, uh, and then, yeah, this is so, Barbara is then just pretending to be Eunice, who is the Madeline Kahn character. And Ryan O'Neill's life is officially burning to the ground in front of us, hilariously. Yeah, but there's that wonderful moment where um, where Madeline Kahn finally breaks into the reception. Yeah. <laughs> because Barbara has already taken her name badge, and she's told everyone that she is Eunice, um, right. Ryan O'Neill's fiance. And Madeline Kahn arrives late and can't convince anyone that she's actually Eunice. She finally breaks in and she's dragging like house managers and major D's. And she finally gets to the table. And by this time, Barbara Streisand has charmed the pants off of everyone at the table. And Ryan O'Neill has has realized that, you know, her presence is is helping him. Right. And so Madeline Kahn arrives and and asks Ryan O'Neill to vouch for her. And Ryan O'Neill says, I've, I've, I don't know who this, I've never seen this woman before. <laughs> and that's sort of a great, that's a great moment in this movie that sort of separates it from the Cary Grant role and yeah. his, and what he's willing to do and not do in bringing up baby where, uh, you know, early on in this movie, Ryan O'Neill makes this choice to become complicit in this, uh, in the, in these shenanigans. This grift, this yeah. large grift. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, we get, so then we have the classic farce, the slamming doors, mixing up the bags, the hotel fire, all brilliantly played physical comedy, um, leading to just a star is born performance very briefly from John Hillerman, who says, I am the manager of what's left of this hotel. (laughs) And he invites Ryan O'Neill to leave. Hillerman, to me, is the Bogdanovich secret weapon because in this movie, he's fantastic. It, it, with very little to do, but he, but he's just. Indel- you remember him indelible. forever from yes. this one scene, yeah. Then he plays two roles in Paper Moon, and right. he's absolutely terrifying. He he yeah. is the sheriff yeah. who is out to get Ryan O'Neill and does get Ryan O'Neill, and it really, as a kid, seeing Paper Moon. Now Paper Moon, I did see in theaters when it when it came out, and. I remember being devastated that Ryan O'Neill's character got beat up and all, mm-hmm. all the money got taken away from him and that the sheriff ran him out of town and almost killed him. I mean, it was like, wow, this is not funny. This is not a comedy. This is right. devastating. That's all John Hillerman. who's yeah. just fantastic in these in these. And then uh, he was Adonovich in uh, Blazing Saddles after that. It's one of the Johnson people right. in the town. Right. Rock Ridge. Right. Uh, and then, so then Ryan's up in the Sky Bar and he and uh, Barbara have their moment singing as time goes by Ryan playing the piano which is beautiful and something that I didn't realize but read about this week I was like oh yeah right on there's no non-diegetic music in this movie and I think that's what makes it as sort of timeless and very modern 
Like yeah. that's why it's not that you know this movie gets labeled a lot as this, just this homage to screwball comedies and this right. nostalgia piece. I don't feel that at all. I mean, right. obviously it's 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 touch it's touching on that stuff and is a, is a tribute to that stuff, but it's not nostalgic. It's a completely mod. That movie feels like it could have been made today. Yeah, uh, I mean, if yeah. they were still making good movies today, but, right? right yeah. <laughs> but the fact that there is no music, none of those screwball gags, none of that visual cartoon stuff is is amplified in any way, shape, or form by any music. It's all played right. with without any soundtrack music. So that's interesting enough to me, and also like right on. What a smart move. What I also read this week was that the same thing is true for bringing up Baby, which I think is probably oh, even that? more insane for when that film was made. Yeah. It's amazing to me that there's no... That's a, that's, an, that's a crazy choice to have made back then. Wow. Yeah. But again, works. works works like yeah. gangbusters. If you want to make a funny movie, don't bother to add goofy music to it. Yeah. Well, that was, you know, Barry Sonnenfeld uh, on Gilbert Podcast <laughs> and saying, do not ever let the composer know it's a comedy. Because ah, you'll okay. have you'll have slide whistles and triangles. Yeah. Well, I think the same thing is true. Don't let the composer know it's a horror movie. I remember seeing um, the theatrical version of it, which I thought was terrible. The worst. But 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 that I but I knew within two minutes it was going to be terrible because this the score was such a cheesy, you know, generic horror movie yeah. crapola. I was like, oh god, I can't sit through this. No. No. <laughs> So uh, we learn that Ryan is a virgin and uh, makes him ever the more enticing to Barbara. And then this leads to... uh, Oh, I don't even... Now, I don't remember this. Do we learn that Ryan's a virgin? Yeah, yeah, because he's Uh, talking about my first time has to be with Eunice. And she's like, but I'm Eunice. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So she's grifting him out of his virginity. Right. Uh, And then, you know, we we get into the chase portion of the movie, uh, you know, with because the diamonds are missing, the documents are missing, everything, the igneous rocks are missing, everything's mixed up, and okay. chaos is, is, is ensuing. So let me rattle off what I think. And there might be more than this, but the, uh, there are at least these five set pieces. And let me just say, there are movies, there are comedy movies that I consider to be classics that only have one real set right. piece. Like, okay, like Abbott and Costello in High Society. There's this one scene at the beginning where they are they play plumbers. They arrive at this fancy mansion. There's a big soiree going on downstairs, and they but they've been asked to fix a uh, a leaky ba- bathtub faucet. And they go up, and over the course of ten minutes, they manage to break every pipe in the bath bathroom, and they're both soaking wet. There's a flood. The bathtub ends up getting unmoored from the floor, and like <laughs> yeah. they ride off it. Of, they ride know, off one, of it, yeah. Yeah, one of the funniest fucking things I've ever seen. I couldn't right. tell you one other thing about that movie, but I still consider it like one of the funniest movies I've ever seen, and it's really just based on that scene. This movie, in addition to all the other scenes, which are great and funny it's got the dinner reception at the hotel which has to be considered a set piece then it's got the hotel room bit at night with the fire and the ledge with barbara streisand's out on the ledge that's another like show-stopping set piece then it's got the house party at austin pendleton's house that breaks out into the fist and a pie fight right uh which I, I, you know, who can laugh at a at a at a pie fight these days? But I still manage to laugh Absolutely. when uh, when when Kenneth Mars gets hit not once but twice with pies, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and like you said, it's this beautiful. It's got all that great great pop art stuff yeah. all in that house. It's all which is white. It's it's incredibly stunning to just look at. Yeah, 
Then there is the chase through San Francisco, which, I mean, forget the fact that this movie is a comedy. It's one of the best shot chase sequences I've ever seen. It's on par with French Connection and with Bullet, which I guess this movie was parodying in they some way? They say the parody, but I mean, yeah. maybe. I mean, because everybody was aware of it at the time that San Francisco had served this purpose, but... As many times as I've seen this movie, I've never once caught wind of any shots during that chase which seemed like they got sped up in camera or never. post-production. No. I'm never aware of stuntmen taking the place right. of actual actors. It's a beautifully put-together chase scene that you believe every moment of and there's one shot, which if this movie was nothing but this one shot and everything else about the movie sucked, would still be worth it. Where she's on that messenger bike. Right. And Ryan O'Neill is running alongside her and he has to jump onto the top of the messenger bike, not once, but twice. Right. And it's totally real. It's yeah. totally for real. She's pedaling at speed. He's running that fast. And he's jumping on and off that thing. And I'm like, how do they get Incredibly these guys to do dangerous. this? Yeah. And I read that the uh, stuntman who was doubling for Barbara Streisand fell off the bike and broke his ankle <laughs> during that scene. And so they put her on and, right. and just so let I'm, her do it. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm watching this just gasping at, you know, it's all real. And once again, newly raging at Mad Max Fury Road. And even if you want to defend that as fucking action movie, kiss my fucking ball bag. Watch this. Watch Peter Bogdanovich, George Miller, with your fucking CNC Music Factory CGI music video shit. Have you watched uh, sort of behind the scenes Fury Road stuff and seen what's real and what... Yeah, CGI yeah, yeah. Was. Because oh, everybody okay. was like, this, it was practical. He shot it practical. That was making me insane. These fucking Chicago accents going, oh, Miller shot that practical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's a nice movie, but I, I hear you. I mean, it's, it's The movie true. of the decade, I, accurately, because we live in a time of fucking morons. <laughs> but it is true that there's a lot more CGI in that movie than you would think based on all the hype. Yeah, uh, and also looking at it, you're like, "Well, that doesn't yeah. look like real life." Um, I just want to say the fifth set piece we haven't gotten to yet, but the courtroom climax. Right. I mean, even if even if even if that was the only funny scene in the movie, that's enough for the whole movie, right? And, and but, I so mean, it's, we're getting right. right there, yeah. But there's these there's there's at least five show stopping like would been would have been more than enough for any other movie, and this movie's got five of them, right? Yeah, it's crazy. So I was going to say, foul play, of course, comes to mind when they're going through San Francisco. We should do that movie at some point. Yes. So. Oh, yeah. Have to. If just for, if for nothing else than the theme song. We get to yeah. sing the theme song. Yeah. Right. And, 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 you know, and I would say, having not seen it in at least 15 years, the the one set piece in that movie that I, that I can still remember is the Dudley Moore bedroom <laughs> yeah, apartment yeah. stuff. Right. Is there anything else in that movie that comes close to being like a comedic? There's a big chase with the taxi cab well, okay. and the Japanese tourists yes. in the back. Yeah, right, 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 right. Okay, but they don't actually. The, they were going to the San Francisco Opera House and the Mikado is going on. So hey, oh, we'll yes. get there. There's That's a separate yeah, okay. future episode. Right, right. So uh, yeah, the, oh, the so courtroom. but go ahead. Well, let me before we get to the courtroom. Let me say one more thing. This is the other thing that made me laugh harder than anything else. While watching it this week is the shot where they. They uh, the visual gag of them 
of Ryan O'Neal and Barbara Streisand emerging out of the back door of the costume shop and Ryan O'Neal's get up. He's dressed in this whole oriental yeah. thing. He's got that like the, hat like on. Like the five Chinese brothers or something. Yeah. yeah. The five Chinese brothers, yeah. but also he looks like a moose or something. Right. It's right. the funniest goddamn yeah. get up I've ever seen. And he's taking it so seriously. He's like tiptoeing <laughs> yeah. around and then they have to start running and they do one of those things where they're running and they have to make a sharp, sharp left and do that totally cartoon thing where yeah. they sort of overshoot and they sort right. of bounce their way into the turn. I laughed so fucking hard in that two minutes of the movie. I didn't think I could breathe. Fantastic. And I don't think I'd ever laughed hard at that part of the movie before. I don't know why it struck me so funny this time. Well, you're like movie. losing your breath watching it now as an adult when you yeah. realize the physicality of everything involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, and then we get to the courtroom and... Um, the- and then this guy walks into the movie, Liam Dunn. Right. And again, with like five minutes to go of a movie that is brilliantly cast from start to finish, this guy almost steals the movie single-handedly <laughs> yeah, yeah. by himself. Yeah. And uh, the bailiff, I want to point out, too. I just lost mm-hmm. his name. But immediately well, recognized. You mean Graham, not M. M. at Walsh? Uh, no, Graham Jarvis, the bailiff in oh, the courtroom, the mustache, oh, okay. the bald guy, from Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Oh, yes. Like yes. they're so instantly... Isn't M. Emmett also the bailiff? Or he's, the he's, arresting he's, like the he's the arresting officer. He's the cop. He's the arresting officer. Okay, right, yeah. And then we have the payoff of uh, everything works out in the end. And Ryan and Babs yeah. are on the plane, and Bugs and Elmer Fudd sing What's Up, Doc. And uh, just a masterpiece. Wonderful. So... Well, I'm, I'm glad we agree. Yeah. <laughs> I, I won't even get into, we can do this some other time. All right. My concept of how the 70s starts off with three of the funniest movies I've ever seen. Where's Papa? Yeah. And and this, and Paper Moon, and then proceeds to Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein right. and, and Smile and Bad News Bears. All like masterpieces. Yeah. Then by the time this the decade's closing, it's 1978 and we get Animal House. Right. And we get Caddyshack, and we get Blues Brothers, and I and I bring these up because I feel like because this is a Bogdanovich film, people might think it's like this sort of more sophisticated, almost like a Woody Allen sort of cerebral comedy. Right. It's not. It's a total. I mean, it's every kind of brow, but it's certainly yeah. as lowbrow as any other kind of. It's, right. it's it's at least as lowbrow as it is highbrow. Right. It's a totally populist, like aiming straight for mainstream. Right comedy just like those those decade ending comedies like Animal House yeah. and Caddyshack and Booze Bros. Now to me as somebody who grew up through those things and saw all those in the theaters there's no comparison. Like to me comedy comes in like a lion in the 70s and goes out <laughs> like a lamb. <laughs> I know you're much a much bigger fan of like Animal Well Animal House, House is to me like one of the great films period because it it emanates so organically and completely from National Lampoon. Um, and Caddyshack, I think, is hilarious, but it's a cocaine fr- f- frenzy. And the Blues <laughs> right. Brothers, I saw that was the first movie I ever saw at a drive-in. And then you know I'd see it on TV and whatever. Then I saw it in seventy millimeter at Radio City Music Hall, and I was like, "This is a goddamn masterpiece." <laughs> it's so um, it's it's such an achievement. Again, like this, where you're watching this, but then you, you have to stop and think, like, why are the Blues Brothers wrecking 300 cars? What does this have to do with the friggin' Blues Brothers? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the whole grossness of being in Chicago, and the Blues Brothers being what they are in Chicago and everything. So, 
But uh, yeah, I'm a fan of those three films. I recently watched Blues Brothers 2000, and I honestly didn't didn't like or dislike it anymore. <laughs> um, I saw that on a bootleg video that I bought on the subway, like a shot with a camcorder with uh, the people talking and stuff oh. in the theater. Yeah, <laughs> That's the best way to oh, see it. Yeah, I figured it was. That's why I did it. Yeah. All right. I want to quickly read off. We did this last week and we got some feedback that this was a good feature that we should continue. Right. Talking about what was playing the oh, day... Okay, what was playing in New York the day that um, What's Up Doc came out, which was March 10th, 1972. So in the New York Times, I've got an ad here for Andy Warhol's Women in Revolt. All right. Starring Candy Darling, Hollywood Lawn, and Jackie Curtis. Have you ever seen this one? one? So here's, I'm only talking about it because here's the pull quote from Vincent Canby in this ad. Vincent Canby, New York Times, says, Candy Darling comes very close to being a real actress. <laughs> well, that meant a lot to Candy, I'm sure, at the time. Like, yeah, you're, I'm you're sure passing. it did. I'm sure it did. Right. Uh, something, a movie I've never seen was playing, oh, a lot of Shakespeare going on in 1972. Paul Schofield in King Lear. Don't know it. Uh, was play and that was rated GP, which is, was not a rating that I thought they ever used. Yeah, yeah, in New York it was. G- it was then I thought it was that PG, was. A, yeah, I thought it was PG in New York, and it was GP like down south. No, it was reason. GP but before it was PG, G- and Keensburg, okay. New Jersey, at the Colonial, they had the GP sign that they would use like deep into the seventies. Yeah, okay, maybe that's maybe that's what I saw. Maybe like on a trip across yeah. country in seventy seven, yeah. I was driving through Podunk towns, which still hadn't changed their their. Their signs, and that's why the I thought M rating was that, that an was actual R. Oh, that was yeah, an, mature. And yeah. when did when did that stick around? To? I don't know because because that was the other place I saw that was at the at the Colonial. They had an M sign that you'd see in the back of the box office. Yeah. Okay, playing at the Playboy Theater, Roman Polanski's. What is it? Macbeth. Su- yes, Macbeth. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen that. I have seen that. It's good. Uh. At the Lincoln Art, Charlie Chaplin in Modern Times. All right. Um, at the Walter Reed Theaters, they had their own ad. They were playing at the Zigfield was Cabaret. All right. At the Cor- at the Coronet was the French Connection. Okay, big time. At a theater that I can't read the name of, there was a double feature, and this is where we're getting into the good stuff. All these double features. It's a double feature of Sunday Bloody Sunday, and Midnight Cowboy. Wow. Two by All John right. two by John Schlesinger. Yeah. Oh, that was with, at the uh, at the Fine Arts is where that was. With a shared theme of uh candy darling like sexuality. <laughs> now at the thirty fourth Street East, Peter Bogdanovich's The Last Picture Show was still in town. All right. Still bouncing around, sure. Um here's a double feature that I don't know. Outback playing with Ken Russell's The Music Lovers, two movies I've never seen. Never saw the music lovers. Never heard of Outback. Yeah, me either. Maybe that was like a live stage show. I don't know. <laughs> um, okay, here's a movie that we're going to be talking about at some point. Uh, Warren Beatty in Dollars. Uh, oh, yes. Playing yes. as a double feature with The Go-Between. Hmm. I don't know The Go-Between. What is that? I, I don't know. know the name, I think, but I don't know. I know. Same here. Yeah. Uh, Minnie and Moskowitz was playing at Cinema all 2. Right. I know that one. Dirty Harry was playing all over the place. Sure. Um, Walt Disney's Fantasia was at the Paramount. Okay. I saw that in 72 in the theater. 
Now, What's Up Doc? Oh, What's Up Doc was opening at Radio City Music Hall. Oh, how about that? And it was right. like alternating with the Great Easter Show. Like the okay. live, the that live makes Easter sense. show. Yeah. Yeah. Marlon Brando in The Nightcomers, which I've never seen. Was never seen. Want to. At The Baronet. Um, a movie called To Find a Man. That's a hot one, but I don't know it. Yeah. Um, Nicholas and Alexandra. Okay. Never saw it, but certainly know it. George C. Scott in The Hospital. A great movie. Directed by Arthur Hiller. Right. Um, uh, National Velvet was was playing at uh, for children MGM children's matinees. Oh, that's uh, great! I yeah. used to love when they did that. Now, of course, I remember this happening all the time. Uh, there was a Marx Brothers double feature in theaters at the Beekman, uh, Duck Soup and Horse Feathers. I remember sure. that that kind of all thing. the time. The Marx Brothers were it in the seventies. Uh, okay, here's a movie I haven't seen, but maybe you have. Renee Taylor and Joseph Bologna in Made for Each Other. I have seen that film. <laughs> it's two people yelling at each other, which is something I always find entertaining. Yes. Uh, yeah, I saw that of, on Channel 7 at like late at night once. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, speaking of two people uh, at the 72nd Street Playhouse was McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Okay. Great movie. Uh, but that was paired with James Garner in Skin Game. Oh, that's a good movie. I saw that on HBO once. Now, what kind of uh, movie is that? 80s. That is a comedy with, um, oh, is he with Sidney Poitier? Oh, I can't think of what it is. But anyway, does it, does it make any sense western. to be paired with McCabe and Mrs. Miller? Yeah, it's a Western. Yeah. Oh, it is a Western. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Straw Dogs was playing at the Lowe's Tower East and the Lowe's State One. Hey, anybody who's young, these were the movies that were available to adults when we yeah. were children. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's insane, right? It's absolutely yes. insane. Yeah. You know, and, and anyone who says those were the days, well, this is what they mean. I mean, they really yeah. were those days. And imagine it was cheap. You could, you, how many yeah. times like, you yeah, just these are all like a buck. go to a movie. Right. Yeah. Now, dollars was all over the place. Um, but it was a, it was as a, it was paired as a double feature with Jacqueline Suzanne's The Love Machine, <laughs> <laughs> which I've never seen, and of course I'm dying to. Here's another double feature that was all over the place: Manhattan, Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, Nassau, Westchester, Suffolk. Honestly, I used to see the listing for Nassau, and I never had any idea where that was. I don't. I still don't. It was think the I'm island down yeah, in the Bahamas. I, yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. I still think yeah. that's what it is. Okay, yeah. but the, this double feature was all over the place. Uh, sometimes a great notion with Paul Newman and Henry Fonda, sure. and play Misty for me. Wow, <laughs> that was a double. That's what is a heavy duty what one. is sometimes a great notion about? T- sometimes a great notion was the first film ever broadcast on HBO. Oh wow! Uh, I believe it's a a western of sorts. I think it's about like a Jeremiah Johnson kind of story, a pioneer. I think I never saw it. Okay, I, I got didn't know t- that weird bit of HBO trivia. They showed a hockey game in that movie. Huh. <laughs> a hockey game? Yeah, yeah. HBO and then sometimes a great notion. Wow. wow. Yeah. Okay. So two two last movie ads here. One of them is for a movie I've never heard of, and I'm, I guess I should be embarrassed I haven't. Uh, Georgia, Georgia. Diana Sands in Maya Angelou's Georgia, Georgia. <laughs> no, I don't know. It sounds like a... 
made up movie on Seinfeld, you know. But that exactly. was, I think of Rochelle Rochelle, but yeah. And the other this other movie that I I guess I must have known at some point, but now I'm sort of drawing a blank. Tales from the Crypt with Oh Peter yeah. Fishing. Oh, that's the uh Amicus uh yeah, based on the that's with um um, is that like an Joan Collins? Is that yes. like a bunch yeah, of yeah, yeah, it's an anthology. Okay. okay. That's with Joan Collins as the woman who's being terrorized by the psycho Santa Claus. All right, you want to hear Judith Christ's pull quote from that ad? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Judith Christ says about Tales from the Crypt, you will be left reeling. Nothing is left to the imagination. For horror, I can't recall a film so filled with it. Juicy terror. Done in very, <laughs> done in very high style with polished performances and the excellent kind of production the genre too rarely gets. Well, she I'm, loved some tales from the crypt. Wow, I'm gonna. I understand how she came to that conclusion. Yeah, it's an eye grabber. But now that one was rated PG, so they were using right. both of these things interchangeably, I guess. Or was there a difference between GP and PG? No, I think they were the same. I think they were the same. I think it was parental guidance suggested. Yeah. So this must have been just on the cusp of them changing. Yeah. GP now, sounds backwards automatically. That meant general patronage. Right. I'm, oh, I'm going to mention one other. No, I'm sorry. Two other ads that I missed earlier. All right. One of them is for Clockwork Orange that was showing at Cinema One. Okay. And then uh, second big week at a flagship theater near you for Robert Redford and George Siegel in The Hot Rock, which All is right. a movie I saw not too long ago and thought was pretty great. Yeah, yeah. I love that movie. Yeah. I saw that on uh, Frank and Gilbert's recommendation, you know, over the sometime the past few years. We we screened it as part of a Donald uh, Westlake uh, oh, series awesome. uh, at the Cinematheque. Not too. Well, long. one thing I want to touch on before we go is uh, a glimpse of Tiger. Did you come across that title in your research? No. What is so? That? What's up, Doc? Was in part based on a novel called A Glimpse of Tiger. And it turns really? out that it's, it's yeah. So what it was is that uh, the studio, Warner Brothers, had the rights to this. And it actually went into production with Elliot Gould, um, Kim Darby, and directed by John Borman. And Elliot Gould was so out of his mind, either on drugs or just being Elliot Gould, that they shut down after four days. He walked off the set and they said, forget it. And somehow that the rights to that novel evolved quickly into uh, what's up, Doc. Now, the, does it me, share any? Plot okay, this point? is the craziest thing. It's about a teenage girl, nineteen-year-old from Indiana, who runs away to New York, takes up with a con man named Luther, who keeps switching personas. He says he's Dracula. He says he's the Mad Bomber of London, and he's pulling off nonstop schemes involving like phone sex, pornography, drugs. And ultimately, he's going to blow up some buildings. I just ordered the book because like, I have to read this. Written by uh, Herman Rocher, who wrote this previous novel had been Summer of 42. Hmm. Um, but it reminded me of... Uh, but it doesn't wind up in getting a screen credit, does it? No. it's. Uh, although, you know what? I don't think so. I don't think I noticed it on there. But, but I did in researching this. It came up. And then I found an entire oral history of the movie, A Glimpse of Tiger, that I'll put on our social media. Well, and that brings me to one thing that we didn't really get to talk about was the screenwriters. We didn't really talk about oh, yeah. Buck Henry and uh, Robert Benton and uh, what's his name, David Newman. 
Right. Um, and I'm not sure who did what, except that there is a Buck Henry script from 1971 that's available to look at online. Wow. And I read I read the first couple pages, and it seemed to be pretty much what they shot, at least the beginning right. of it. So I don't know if those other guys took the first pass at it. And yeah, what Buck I read Henry- is that it was uh, Bogdanovich wrote the story, and then Benton and um, his partner wrote. Uh, each wrote they took three three drafts they started in May they had to get shooting in August and then Buck Henry did the final three so uh, uh, but yeah, one thing sense. one thing about the uh, Glimpse of Tiger so you know the movie Private Lessons the uh, teen yeah. sex comedy that set yeah. off the revolution that was so also that, based on A Glimpse of Tiger that, that was, well almost <laughs> it was based on a book called Philly by Dan Greenberg it's a kidnapping thriller that borders on horror but somehow that evolved into private lessons. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm. that's a book I read and I just, I couldn't believe it was possible. So this, I'm hoping to have a similar experience. Yeah, we should do a podcast or somebody should do a podcast sometime about books that turned into movies that had little or nothing to do yeah. with those no, original well, books. This is one, yeah, no, that's a great topic. Yeah. Hmm, perhaps we'll have a website soon where we could write articles and explore that. <laughs> yeah, perhaps we have. <laughs> we will. So... Um, anything else before we, uh, I think that's it. I think this was a, a knockout. This was fantastic. We're yeah. running long, but who cares? People, yeah. people can't get enough of us. Honestly. They, nor should they. <laughs> but, um, uh, next week, uh, I, uh, we're going to have a special guest. Um, and we're going to be, um, talking about a little number directed by Mr. Dom DeLuise called Hot Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> And then soon after That's that, me touching my licking my finger and touching my thigh, <laughs> hot stuff. Soon after that, we're going to have a movie that came up today in conversation. Uh, two minute warning with Ooh. another special special guest. I mean, yeah, hang on to you everything when that happens. <laughs> and um, and we're going to slow things down a little bit in the month of July. We're going to start doing uh, episodes every other week because Mike and I are both overwhelmed with other projects. But in order to tide you over on our off weeks, we might do little mini episodes where we just um, don't 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 watch a movie and don't stick to any particular time right. and just bullshit for a couple right. of minutes. Like the whole first 45 minutes of the first episode. <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. Um, but also we've talked about uh, possibly going to a double feature format mm-hmm. where we'll do a 70s movie that we saw in the 70s and then some other related movie from whenever. Yeah, since I usually end up watching three or four movies exactly, in preparation yeah, for yeah. these one movie episodes, yeah. I might as well just officially codify the yeah. fact that we're watching more than one thing. Good. All right. I like so, it. So, fare thee well, one and all. Thank you, Ben. This was spectacular. All right. Talk to and you, you know, after a couple of weeks of me not giving our sign off, let me do this one more oh, time. Oh, please. Yeah. Fuck you, Bill de Blasio. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>